This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. This is the summer series for Beyond Zero Emissions Community Radio, where we bring you the best shows of 2017. For more information, head to bze.org.au or if you're listening through 3CR 8.55am, please don't touch that dial. Enjoy the program. Hello listeners, you're listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions show on Radio 3CR in Melbourne. 855am or streamed from the uh, 3CR website. So welcome. We've got a really exciting show today. Um, it's all about community energy. Um, we were uh, fortunate enough to go and attend the Coalition for Community Energy Community Energy Congress last week, which was in Melbourne on uh, Monday and Tuesday last week, and there was a really good turnout, over 600 people there. So today's show is going to be focused all about that event. Um, there were so many things going on, and we're actually going to be following up in future shows with a whole lot of um, more in-depth discussions about some of the things that came out of that. But I won't uh, talk too long because we've got a full program to get through. And we'll start off with the interview with Soren Hermanson. And Soren was the keynote speaker and one of the international guests at the conference. And he was talking about his community in Denmark and how they went to 100% renewable power quite a long time ago. So enjoy this chat we had with Soren. Hi listeners, we're at the uh, Community Energy Congress um, at Melbourne Town Hall and we're having a chat with Soren Hermanson who's been one of the keynote speakers and um, is from Denmark. So welcome Soren. Thank you very much. Look, for our listeners that may not be familiar with um, with the work that you've done in community energy, can you just give us a bit of a snapshot of what you've achieved in your community? Um, I'm from Denmark, as you said, and uh, Denmark is, uh, is is a green green country in many ways, also. So I'm 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 from a community in Denmark, uh, and and the the reason why I'm here is that we won a competition in 1997 to be the Danish Renewable Energy Island and prove that we could change to 100% self-supplied energy systems by in 10 years and do it with proven technology and and kind of no extraordinary funds, but the funds that was available for people in Denmark to to make this green transition. So we took on this project and actually we won the competition and and became self-supplied in less than 10 years. So so the success is what I'm sharing and why I'm invited to come to, to Melbourne for this conference. Yeah, I mean, that's great. It's really in line with the, what Beyond Zero Emissions have actually proposed, that a transition within 10 years is feasible, and with technology that's off the shelf, and you know, there doesn't have to be any amazing new developments to make this actually sustainable. No, that's sure. Uh, that's, I, I think that uh, that what we're talking about here is not so much uh, production. It, it is more the, the, the reception of, of, of what you call it, the policy that makes it possible, that, that is in the way for, for a fast transition. The, the fast transition would be that if, if everything was in, was in favor of the project. But, but when you're fighting different policies that is not in favor of this, you have to struggle with, with the regulate, regulatory and feed-in tariff and a lot of different things here. So, so that is why 
it worked for us. We had a progressive Danish energy policy in Denmark that was very much in favor of a green trans, uh, what you call transition to to sustainable energy from coal, from oil, from gas. We we, we used a lot of fossil fuels. Probably had a lot of your so-called cl- uh, clean clean coal uh, in many years. Also in Denmark, that served the backbone or, or the, the balance capacity in Denmark. But that has been decommissioned and it's, it's out of business now. And we are now at a very high level of of, of uh, renewable energy pen- penetration in the Danish system. And as for my island, which is beyond 100%. Mm. So describe for our listeners what size is the island, what's the population? Uh, it, it is, there's 4,000 people living there, and it's about 30 kilometers long. It's, it covers about 120 square kilometers, so it's, it's not a big place. Uh, now I've been traveling around in your country, so <laughs> it's a fair bit bigger. But, but uh, it, it is one of many communities in Denmark, so you can say that we are not outstanding. Uh, the, the, the outstanding results is maybe significant, but we have a lot of communities in Denmark that is also bigger and almost as advanced as we are. So, so it's a general thing in Denmark to be working with sustainable uh, development in general. Mm. And and how do you see what is the transition like in terms of the rest of Denmark? What's kind of the time frame for some of these other communities? Are they close to 100%? Yes, some of them are. Some of them actually have more power than they, they consume themselves also in, in periods. Uh, but they have a more diverse system than, than, than what we have. I mean, being on a small island, it's not as complicated. We don't have big industry. Uh, so, so, so there's something that we don't have to cover, which is it makes, makes it a little bit easier. You have a pretty constant energy consumption uh, when it comes to kind of normal uh, variations in a, in, a, in a kind of civil society with houses and, and, and consumption. So so the other projects in, are bigger and smaller at many different levels, but it's, they're all kind of, uh, they're all, all in the development because of a target and an end goal where every municipality or, or, or shire, I don't know what you call it here, it ha- has their own targets and, and they go for 50% renewable energy by 2020 or, or 75 by 2030. There's many different targets that is following up on the national target, which says we want to be fossil independent by 2050 in Denmark mm-hmm. uh, in total. And the policy has been to support this and make that possible in with the regulatory and the feed-in tariff and all the structures, the permission to connect to the, to, to, to the grid mm-hmm. uh, and the feed-in law and uh, many other different things that will drive people. There's some tax, in, uh, what, tax deduction systems also that if you invest in green energy, you get a tax deduction uh, where you don't get it if you have a, a black energy system. So there's many different methods to make people happy about that. Yeah. And so what's, what would you say is the, the mix of technologies that are predominant in the Danish system. We live on a 52nd latitude, so so, so we have a we have a, a lot of wind. Uh, so wind plays a significant role in, in this also. But because we are also in a cold area, cold compared to here, we have pretty decent warm winter, warm warm summers. I mean. Um, uh, somewhere we don't need space heating. Most of the year we need space heating. So we can make what we call a combination of heat and power systems, combined heat and power CHP systems that is using any available fuel in the, in the neighborhood. So in a farming community it can be straw mm-hmm. or it can be wood chips if you have some forest, or a combination of wood chips, straw or solar, solar thermal. Or it can be waste incineration. We have waste incinerators near the big cities where we incinerate and produce heat and power from that and feed the heating demand of all the houses in the neighborhood also. And that is that is tipped up with the natural gas from the North Sea. We still have some pipes from out there mm-hmm. that bring some fossil fuels in to kind of meet 
whatever is not there for the moment, which means that we have been able to decommission all the, all the coal-fired power plants. They're gone now. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have uh, decentralized CHP plants, uh, hundreds of them all over Denmark, that, that now ser- serves as the backbone of the Danish energy system. At times, I'm... Now and again, we have more than 100% wind power in the system in Denmark. But, and this is, of course, not only possible because we are interconnected with Germany, Germany and Sweden, so we can export and import uh, when, when there's an overproduction uh, um, other places. We can also shut down wind turbines, which is also happening every now and again, but not, not very often, of course. But there's a big capacity in the country. Yeah, great. And you've been here in Australia for about three weeks now, and it sounds like you've been busy and tripping all around the countryside, yeah. visiting uh, visiting sites with community energy and um, policy discussions, etc. So, how's your feeling of where community energy development is progressing in Australia? I think there's a there's a great public interest in in in, in community power. Mm. I've, I met a lot of people who were ver- working hard to make it happen in in, in their own uh, province, uh, municipalities, or towns, and and I can see there's a lot of a lot of really interesting projects, also a lot of solar projects, a lot of some a lot of wind projects in some some uh, areas, uh, and and many other things that is that is happening. Uh, the difference from from my country to here is that you're struggling a little bit with the, with the federal government and 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 the targets. So so there's no really clear targets for. for for the for the local local communities in, in how they're going to do it, it's more like up to the people who are who are doing it and to find the financing and doing projects also, which is happening. And I'm I'm very I'm very surprised that it it is happening. Uh, but but you can see this is the ingenuity and the creativity of people. Mm, yeah, <laughs> if they really is on it, they they can make it happen. But but it, it could go much faster if there was a federal support for this. Yeah, exactly. And people are just having to kind of get out there and make it happen. It's really coming from the grassroots. Absolutely. So, yeah. um, so, what do you think are the most valuable lessons that you could share with you know a prospective community group that really wanted to get a community energy project off the ground? Well, for, for at the local level, I think it's very important to make a master plan, kind of have a strategic plan you work from, so you can kind of work on a kind of more constant line that that the development is kind of tied to an end goal where you want to kind of meet these and these goals and then kind of roll it back and say to them to get to that end goal you need to backcast the predictions and say to them what do we do tomorrow in three months time and three years time and this is this is engineering Mm -hmm. and and practical planning and then meet with with all stakeholders in the community farmers business people plumbers carpenters house builders politicians and, and citizens and talk about the plan as it is and kind of attach whatever is necessary to make it make it happen you need financing people and everybody to talk about it and this takes a long time this is where we, we spend the most time this is to getting people together talk about the end goal and and kind of find a way to identify what's in it for me for the individual groups of people who are in the in the community we'll never get, align them so they'll think the same way they, they're still different work people, and they, they, they're very different in, in, in their daily life. So we have to respect that and find a way to make them communicate on kind of a common platform where we have this end goal. So it's, it's, the strategic paper has to be pretty professional and good, and, and then we need to allow the differences. So it, it is, in our perspective, or it's a little philosophical uh, background, we, we think that in the differences is the strength of the community. Mm-hmm. Because if you try to make people... Alike, you 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 eliminate you you separate yourself from many other people. Yeah. Okay, and um, just from an international perspective, 
how do you feel? I mean, we've talked a little bit about the fact that there's there's a lack of federal policy, and it's quite difficult from that um, perspective here in Australia. But from an international perspective, where do you feel Australia's kind of sitting? Have you visited with other countries, and um, what's your perspective on that? I think what I can see here is that you kind of miss the reason, the, the, the financial, the business reason for you to go the green, the green direction, the green way here. You're still kind of in the, in the paradigm of coal and, and fossil fuel, which is easy to understand with all the resources you have here and the infrastructure that's already tied up to, to, to that to that kind of fuel. Uh, where I can see other countries like Japan, uh, after Fukushima blew up, they have really turned around, and not, you can see a lot of pop-up community power projects that is actually happening, and they are working quite fast and investing a lot of money in it. And you see many other countries like Germany. When Fukushima happened, Germany kind of decided, declared that they would decommission all the nuclear power and go to green, go, go to green energy. Mm-hmm. And they, I, you can be sure that they didn't do that uh, because they all, all, all of a sudden uh, became hippies. <laughs> it's because it's industry and jobs and business, mm-hmm. and they want to win that market. And, and German industry is pretty efe- efficient, mm-hmm. and they can do that. So, so they have seen this kind of in the, in, the, in the reading of what's happening out there in the future. So nuclear power and centralized energy is not the power. This is decentralized green energy and solar, solar, solar panel manufacturing and wind turbines and all the other stuff that's there. I mean, in Denmark, we have more than 30,000 people working in the wind turbine industry and with subcontracting and everything. So that means, I mean, this is business. So even the toughest conservative who really don't like uh, share, sharing the sharing economy can see the potential in being in that business. Yeah, and I think one of the things that we've really picked up over the Congress is the fact that it just makes sense on that level. You know, whether or not you want to put everything else aside, it gives jobs and, and economic development in those regions to, to get these projects happening. Yeah, you shouldn't be too romantic about it. It is about jobs and business and then kind of the, the yearly turnover and the bottom line of, of, of business here. So if you can do that and at the same time make a more sustainable production and, and lifestyle, then, then I think it's, it, it works perfectly well together, these two things. The one thing drives it and the other thing kind of directs it. So, so we have these, it doesn't, it, it's not a conflict anymore. Where I think in the old days with oil and, 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 and kind of the conflict with, uh, with sustainability, it became kind of a, a, a very tough discussion that was really never going to be a good discussion. No. Well, look, we really appreciate you coming out and sharing your expertise, and um, we hope that you've had a little bit of R&R while you're here. So <laughs> thank you very much, and we hope to talk to you next time you're in the country. Yeah, you're welcome, and I wish you good luck uh, with the transition. Thank you. My name is Casey Clifford and I'm the um, project coordinator and community engagement manager for the Targum Energy Project. Um, and basically I'm here because I think especially in community energy, it's really hard to remain, retain momentum when everyone's so spread out across the country. And I think it's really important to remember why we're doing this, um, come across other people that are doing the same sort of thing, share information, share enthusiasm, and basically um, develop your knowledge. G'day, Richard Inwood here from the Brossa Community Store. So this has been interesting because it shows me that very much the community model is a viable way forward for renewable energy. So that's what we're looking for, large-scale community-owned energy going back into a retail sector. Hello, Keith Reynard from the city of Greater Bendigo. Uh, we've got an aspirational goal in Bendigo to achieve 100% renewable energy within the next 20 years. And um, I think the community, local community projects will have, play a major role in achieving that. So 
the, one of the major benefits of the conference is the ability to network and uh, see how other community energy projects are progressing and it's been a great positive from that perspective. Hi, my name's Liz Harris and I'm from Community Solar Sunshine Coast and two of us from our group have come down here for the conference. It's been really excellent. It's wonderful to hear what's happening around the country and especially the chance to network with people from other groups because often we've been through the same challenges and it, it's, it's great to just get all that positive energy of people taking action and getting some stuff happening. Can you tell me about what's going on in your region back home? Uh, we have been working on a really large project for a hospital roof, but it has actually, the project's just fallen over just a week and a half ago, which is a disappointment, so I guess we're trying to regroup, we need to regenerate our group and, and find a new site, but you know, we're very determined people and, and we'll get on with it because, of course, living in Queensland, there's a huge amount of solar rooftops, but not so much big rooftops and there's, there's great potential there. So I'm Katie Daly with the Alternative Technology Association. We're here at the Community Energy Congress um, holding Speed Date, a community energy expert. It's been going on uh, for throughout the whole Congress. We have about 20, 22 experts that have donated, given their time, for people who are looking at um, seeking answers to questions about starting community energy projects. We have experts that range from financing experts to um, community energy models, uh, people who know a lot about that, people that know a lot about the different types of technology that community energy projects might entail. Um, yeah, and so been really good connecting daters with dates and providing a lot of information for people. Great. And I see on your stool here you've got a number of publications that are put out by ATA. Can you just kind of run through what they are and uh, what the intent of each of the different titles are? Yeah, well, Renew Magazine is really our flagship magazine. It's been around since the Alternative Technology Association was founded in 1980. Um, it represents um, contributions from our readers and from our members and um, looks at um, sustainability throughout all your all across your home. So anything from transitioning your house from gas and electric to an all-electric home, looking at energy-efficient appliances, looking at the future of technology and seeing how that can help, uh, to draft-proofing, to pretty much gardening, pretty much anything associated with sustainability in your home. We also produce Sanctuary Magazine, um, Sanctuary Modern Green Homes. It is uh, about 12 years old since it, it started, and we created Sanctuary because we realized there was um, a need for people who are right on the cusp of doing a large project, a home renovation or a build, um, to get information about what's out there to be able to make their build more sustainable. And so uh, Sanctuary really is an inspirational magazine, um, shows people pretty pictures of great, beautiful Australian um, designs. And at the end of each profile, house profile, it lists uh, the list of sustainable specifications. And so it's a really great resource to see what people are using out there that it's actually on the market that they can buy today to, um, to make their build or their renovation more sustainable. Well, that's great. Thank you for all that. Um, what have you, what has the organisation seen in terms of the development of community energy? You've kind of been around for a long time and been involved in some um, earlier work with the community energy movement. Yeah, well, we've been we've been part of the community energy movement from the beginning. We were at the Congress two years ago. There was a lot of energy that came out of that Congress, and we're here again. And um, I'd like to see that the energy has um, really blossomed into a lot of projects 
projects that have happened over the last two years. Um, ATA has been a big part of a lot of them. We do a lot of the um, feasibility studies to see uh, what type of um, type of energy is going to be created from the projects that um, people are looking at, what type of sizes of systems, um, what the payoff will be, the, those types of things. So we're involved in a lot of the projects. Um, and yeah, I think that there's just the chance for exponential growth in this market in Australia, and it's very exciting to be part of that. Great. Thanks very much. Thank you. So as you can see, it's um, it was a pretty lively event, and uh, people got a lot out of it. There was a lot of information down in that area where the ATA was set up around um, different, different providers and uh, retailers, uh, but one of the things that we're going to go into now is a segment of speakers that were part of a um, one of the evening events called Reinvest. And this, I think, is one of the really important things is, you know, the divestment movement it was really important, but now it's about where people actually put their, not only their energy, um, which is what we were talking about with lots of the different models around community energy, but actually where they put their money, whether that's uh, in a personal investment sense or through their superannuation. So the reinvest uh, part of the program was sponsored by Future Super, who are looking at um, you know investment products that are purely around uh, renewable energy generation. Um, so that's kind of exciting to see that people are actually now looking to actually putting their money where their mouth is. So we're going to run through a couple of different speakers, um, Simon Corbell and then Alison Crook from Innova Energy and Heather Smith from Carina. Um, so we'll start off with Simon. Well, thank you very, very much uh, for that welcome, and I'm really pleased to be here tonight. Thank you to the organisers of the Community Energy Congress and Future Super for the opportunity uh, to speak to you tonight. Now, I have to say it wasn't 100% by 2018, it was 100% by 2020, uh, but what I can report to you tonight is that the ACT, Canberra's National Capital, is on track to be 100% renewable energy by the year 2020. And this is a... This is a very, very important, very, very important statement that we send to the rest of the country uh, when we focus on what is actually achievable and realisable when you get your policy right. One of the figures uh, that uh, Jeremy Leggett didn't mention uh, in his presentation but is really worth thinking about tonight is that globally in 2015, nearly $330 billion worth of investment occurred in the renewable energy sector globally. $330 billion worth of investment. This is no fringe industry. This is a technological transformation. And the same thing is happening here in Australia. In Australia, uh, in 2015, there was... Oh, no, I beg your pardon. This year, this year, 2017, there is $5 billion worth of investment planned in renewable energy projects. There is over 2,200 megawatts of new build renewable energy generation underway, mostly wind and solar. That is more energy generation being built today, this year, than has occurred for half a century. So this is a significant shift in our energy sector 
uh, which is now underway. Now we hear a lot about the federal debate. We hear a lot of reasons about why renewables are to blame for blackouts uh, and for energy instability. And yes, there are technological challenges that must be overcome to allow the penetration of renewables uh, at significant scale into our electricity grids. But we know that the answers and we know that the solutions are present. And that's reflected in community sentiment. Just on the weekend, there was a poll out from the Essential Polling Group. They found that 64% of Australians agreed, 64%, that renewable energy is the solution to our energy needs. And that was after months and months and months of public criticism and condemnation of the renewable energy sector at a federal level. 65% of Australians supported a 50% renewable energy target by the year 2030. These figures are no flash in the pan. They have consistently been reported now for years, years and years and years. And in my experience in the ACT, I know that over 90% of Canberrans supported action on climate change. And they labelled and recognised that the number one the number one action that they wanted to see was investment in large-scale renewable energy projects. So in the ACT, we implemented a reverse auction large-scale feed-in tariff law. This allowed for the development of 700 megawatts of large-scale solar and wind across the nation, across South Australia, Victoria, New South Wales, as well as within the ACT itself. It delivered over a billion dollars worth of investment. It delivered over $500 million of direct investment into the ACT economy. It, it caused a 400% increase in the number of renewable energy jobs at a time when nationally the number of renewable energy jobs fell by over a third. So this is what good smart policy can achieve. And what I'm particularly pleased about in my new role here in Victoria is that those same policies are now being enacted by the Victorian Government and also being seriously contemplated by the Queensland Government uh, and indeed to a degree by the New South Wales Government. Large-scale reverse auctions, long-term contracts, secure cheap finance so your renewable energy is cheaper, they deliver projects in a timely way because banks understand them and investors understand them. And they can secure significant economic development outcomes for local communities. And we've been talking a lot about that today in the context of community energy. It's important not to underestimate the scale of the Victorian program. As Greg has said, 5,400 megawatts to be built over the next nine years. That's a lot of wind projects, that's a lot of solar projects. There's opportunities for all forms of renewable energy generation as part of this very, very important program. But when you look at not just Victoria, but you look at the commitments made by the Queensland Government, uh, where they're targeting 50% renewable by 2030, another 5,500 megawatts. When you look at even the conservative New South Wales Government, saying that they want to target net zero emissions by 2050, 
you can see that the shift is on and that it's not happening from the top down, it's happening from the bottom up. It's happening from states and regions and cities and local communities. And that is just so critically important. Last month here in Victoria alone, there were 425 megawatts of large-scale solar projects committed for development. That's either going to tender or actual commitments to construction, just in one month. And equally, there was 20 megawatts for big battery developments. So the shift is on. And it is part of a global shift. To achieve decarbonisation, which we know is what is needed to meet our Paris climate commitments, we have to see the complete removal of fossil fuels from the electricity supply sector by the middle of this century. That is what is needed. And it's needed for the landscapes that we love so that we can protect them. It's needed so that the communities that we love and that the people we care about can enjoy the same quality of life that we have had the privilege to enjoy. Carbon risk exposure to carbon-constrained assets is now a real and pending pressure that companies are going to have to deal with, and particularly companies that make long-term investments or are managing other people's money. Globally, the Financial Stability Board, which was created by the G20 after the global financial crisis, which is led by Michael Bloomberg and the Governor of the Reserve Bank in England, have made recommendations that companies must disclose their risks when it comes to carbon-exposed assets. And soon, it will be inevitable that company directors will have to have regard and be held personally liable if they make investments in assets that they know are subject to significant carbon exposure. All of this points to the need and the importance of investing in renewable energy. All of it points to the need to support program and policies that make renewable energy happen. So whether it's fantastic projects like the Canoa Bridge Wind Project in central Victoria, which was supported by the ACT scheme, whether it's projects like the Karatha Solar Farm, which is being invested in uh, by the local Melbourne-owned company IIG and indeed by Future Super, the Majura Solar Farm in the Majura Valley, a community-owned uh, project owned again by uh, Future Super, or indeed uh, projects like Hepburn Wind. They all demonstrate to us that individuals can be part of this energy transition, that they can take ownership of this energy transition. And I think when we reflect on where we want to be in 20 or 30 years, we must make our decisions based on three key principles. Our society needs to be more just, it needs to be more sustainable, and it needs to be more prosperous. Clean energy, renewable energy, is clearly meeting all of those criteria. Thank you very much for the opportunity to speak to you today. You're listening to 3CR Radio.
I'm Chai Sultana, and you are listening to 3CR. Please subscribe. Do yourselves a massive favor. Thank you very much. Great. So, first question for you, Alison, is can you tell us a little bit about Inova and how it all got set up? Thanks, Kirsty. Well, Inova is, was and still is Australia's first community-owned renewable energy retailer. Uh, we started, um, it basically all started in late 2014, uh, following the last Community Energy Congress. Uh, a group of uh, some of our bar and shire, our shire councils from the region, sustainability officers, got together with the Total Environment Centre and the Office of Environment and Heritage and provided funding for a feasibility study uh, for a community retailer. And a group, small group of us put our hand up and so 2015 saw the feasibility study completed, a full business plan developed, the retail licence application prepared, the um, prospectus prepared, and from late August through to December, there was a capital raising with a target of $4 million. So that was quite a risky business, and it was very much a community story. Uh, and in the end, we, we came through with 1,100 investors, uh, 75% from the region and the other 25% from every other state and territory in Australia because people wanted to see the model work. So 2016, first half of 2016, saw so us setting up all the systems, recruiting the staff, doing all the complex things that are required of this very highly regulated industry as the retailing part of it is incredibly regulated. And uh, 20, second half of 2016 saw so us taking on customers so right now, we're just about to hit our 2,000th customer and uh, we expect to be breaking even ahead of target by about February uh, next year, 2018, um, price spikes permitting. So that's the story of a, a, how a community retailer can get up. That's fantastic. Yeah, let's give a round of applause. It's really impressive, and I think there's a lot of renewable energy retailers. But I would love to hear, Alison, what makes a what makes a community-owned renewable energy retailer different? Well, first of all, I should say we we don't see ourselves as just another retailer. Um, we we see ourselves as a community energy organisation with retailing capacity, and we're here to assist other community energy organisations in whatever ways possible, and in particular uh, to do uh, generation. But to boil it down, I think there are basically five major differences. So the first is that we're a social enterprise. We're set up at the outset as a social enterprise with public benefit objectives um, embedded in our constitution. So we have um, the, the twin objectives are that we will be of benefit to the environment through, through assisting the community to reduce carbon emissions. And the second objective is that we will benefit the community by ensuring that all can participate in the shift to renewables. So that's the um, social enterprise aspect. And I think the other thing about social enterprises is they have a very strong social equity focus. And just to give you an example of this, because it flows through to the pricing structures, the average salary of the CEO of a social enterprise compared to the lowest paid person is 3.6 to 1. For a FTSE 100 company, it's 150 to 1. So you can imagine how that impacts on the pricing structures. <laughs> yeah. 
Secondly, we're genuinely community-based as opposed to community-washed. I think, I think community is now becoming the new green, um, that everybody is now trying to say they're both green and community in order to be seen as socially respectable to consumers. But we're genuinely, um, we've grown out of community need, we're community-owned, we're responsible to the community. So that's the second thing. Thirdly, we're structured to ensure that our um, objectives, our community benefit objectives, are fulfilled with a not-for-profit arm that's a registered charity to which 50% of the profits will flow to ensure that we can carry out energy education uh, and social benefit projects. Fourthly, we, are, we exist to encourage community energy generation and to focus on selling community energy, uh, renewable energy. And finally, and uniquely amongst retailing companies, we have an energy education program um, with involving trained community volunteers, our Innova Energy Coaches, uh, who are focused on helping people to save energy, to reduce energy use and save on energy costs. So, and we aim to develop that in conjunction with community energy organisations everywhere. That's really interesting. Um, we're about to hear from a couple more um, community energy projects. But before I bring them up, I just have one more question for you, mm -hmm. which is what inspired you to create ANOVA? Well, we really developed in response to the strong feeling in the community that politicians, our political leaders, were simply not doing what was necessary uh, to combat climate change. Uh, and we had to do something to show that it was possible to act. So there was a great demand to see more renewable energy generation, but there's a gap, because if you've got a generation plant, you have to have somebody to buy it. Um, there had to be a retailer, and the big retailers are clearly not interested in purchasing uh, when they need to be using their own plants and want to control their own plants. So they're not, and their systems don't fit. The final straw for many, including me, um, was the attempt to start coal seam gas mining at Bentley. Mm -hmm. uh, near Lismore in northern New South Wales. We had to stop that and show that it wasn't needed. Um, there's a wonderful inspirational documentary movie showing on the 2nd of March at the Nova in Carlton called The Bentley Effect. Do look it up on the website. Uh, anyone interested in people power and community power should see it because it shows you how community can come together to, to have impact. So that was really um, the story of Innova. Innova is part of the Bentley effect. Um, Heather Smith is part of Carina. Uh, for those who don't know Carina, the community-owned renewable energy network Australia. I think it actually, um, the idea of it might have started on the walk for solar from Port That's Augusta right. to Adelaide that we organised a few years ago for solar thermal in Port Augusta. Um, but now is an incredible uh, community-owned renewable energy organisation. And Heather is also a Churchill Fellow um, and has been learning about community-owned renewable energy across the world, so has a lot of insights. Um, Jimmy Cocker is um, the director of the Arid Lands Environment Centre. We work um, closely together at Seed Indigenous Youth Climate Network and um, Alec work together with communities in the NT to stop gas field fracking. Um, but today he's here to talk about renewable energy in Alice Springs in particular, um, the Repower Alice um, and the Alice Solar City project. So we're going to hear a bit more from Jimmy in a moment. But first of all, I had a question for you, Heather, which is, can you just tell us a little bit about Karina and what you aim to do? Absolutely. And you're right, it did start on the walk for solar. Right. So Margaret, our founder, is not here today because she's supporting another climate activist 
on the climate emergency declaration to ah. ki- kayak to Canberra. Um, so, so have no doubt uh, a bunch of people were so keen that they walked from Port Augusta to Adelaide and on the way they went, there must be something practical we can do. And those people have been joined by hundreds of donors around Australia. We've got two uh, funds, so a lot of people signed up to the dream that if enough of us, if the 50,000 people that walked in climate marches in 2012 all donated a little bit, we could build that solar thermal power station at Port Augusta. And tonight we've got a bit of a competition for ideas about what we should be spending that $70,000 on to leverage the most emissions reduction that we can. But in the meantime, a bunch of people were going, oh, you're dreaming, solar thermal will never happen, but I want to put my money into something really practical. And so we put um, solar panels and energy efficiency projects on community organisations. We give them interest-free loans. We've got almost, uh, well, in total, we've got $160,000 that's out there revolving. And if you put $100 into our first project, it's already done $212 worth of work through our projects. It's been paid back as an interest-free loan and it's gone out to the next project. So that's our, that's our model. We've done 15 projects and we're always looking for projects. Your um, donations are tax deductible now and we're always looking for projects on not-for-profits um, because once, once those organisations have spent their five or six years paying back their loan out of their savings, the rest is theirs. They get to keep those savings and so that benefit ultimately goes back to their communities. Great. Well done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we're Ah, well, let's hear about that in a moment. I'd like to toot the horn for solar thermal in Fort Augusta, though, because it's now new modelling has come out um, that says that it is very much affordable and we should be investing in it. But I think it would be really great to hear, you know, what's your favourite project or what's an upcoming project that you can get everyone here fired up and what can they do to help? Well, I... They can all source projects for us. You know, there is no doubt that we have reached into communities that haven't thought about solar and we're really, we've been really reliant on our members because they're the ones that have gone, maybe my local school or maybe my local childcare can do this. Um, as our place in the, in the community energy ecosystem, I think is changing a little bit. So it used to be 100% alone from us and we did the crowdfunding. But now we're finding, oh, people want to go and crowdfund a bit themselves, but then they stall a little bit and can't get over the line, and we come in with the extra money, or they get a grant and we come in with the extra money. So I'm just really excited that we're still um, relevant and evolving in how best we can support the community energy sector. That's awesome. And I heard a little whisper that you guys are working together on a renewable energy project. Yeah, absolutely. So, so um, obviously, Northern Rivers has a ton of projects sprinkling through. And the other thing we did uh, in the Northern Rivers region is help Corum set up their revolving fund. So their money revolves in their community. And we went, that's great. We don't need to play here. here. Here's all our documents to help you set up the processes so that you can run. Because we think revolving funds are really powerful. That's really exciting. Well, let's give you a round of applause. 
listeners, we're pleased to have on the line Tom Knockles. Um, Tom wears a few hats, but today we're going to be talking predominantly about the Coalition for Community Energy and the recent uh, Community Energy Congress that just happened uh, this time last week in Melbourne on Monday and Tuesday. It was a, a really well-attended event, and obviously that's the focus of our show today. So welcome, Tom. Yeah, thanks for having me on. That's no problem. Look, can we just go backwards a little bit first and tell our listeners about the history and evolution of the Coalition for Community Energy? Yeah, that's a good idea. The Coalition for Community Energy um, as a concept really started back in 2012. Um, there was a meeting at, uh, at a long-standing environmental organisation, Total Environment Centre in Sydney, um, and at that at that meeting, the idea was floated that um, there perhaps should be uh, an overarching organisation that helped make sure that there was better levels of collaboration amongst all the community groups, community energy groups in Australia. Um, and by doing that, also help ensure that there was avoidance of duplicating duplication. So community energy operates in a pretty resource-constrained environment um, and how and the idea was how can we not compete for scarce resources but collaborate and maximise the use of scarce funding resources, etc. Hmm. Sensible. Yeah, exactly. And so from that meeting, it actually spilled over into a discussion in the pub afterwards and from that meeting, the idea of, of the Coalition for Community Energy was born um, and it was actually formally launched or formalised um, just prior to the first Community Energy Congress, which was in, I believe it was June uh, 2013, so um, uh, approximately two and a half years before the, the current Congress. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so are the Congress is kind of the main community interface of the group or there's an ongoing you know, relationship with helping, helping groups through, through all the... How does the organisation kind of function on a level? And I know that you wear a few hats, so just explain the role that you provide to the coalition. Yeah, I'm part of the team at Community Power Agency and one of the things that we do is sector coordination and it's really in that focus area of work that we play the role of the secretariat for the Coalition for Community Energy. Um, it's actually a um, it's actually a contracted position that we're supposed to have been doing for two years. It's, we've gone beyond our term, and it's going to be going to market soon. So um, we've we've obviously been playing the role of the secretariat for the establishment phase. Now the coalition does several things. Um, most of all, it, it it creates a network where groups can come together to collaborate. Um, to have a united voice. Um, and the sort of penultimate thing that the coalition does is it organises this Community Energy Congress um, at regular intervals. Mm. The first one was in Canberra two and a half years ago and the second one um, was in Melbourne, as you mentioned, last week. Um, we had 600 people coming from right across Australia um, into one location for two days um, and we had side events the day before and the day after. So we're really pleased that we pretty much doubled the size of the event from the first one. And that's a reflection of really a more than doubling of the, of the size and scope of community energy in Australia in, in that time period. Yeah, look, I think it was, um, 
you know, it was a great event, and as you say, there was the events within the Congress itself, and then the pre and post kind of side events. And as someone who um, who was at the event, the hardest thing was kind of trying to spread yourself thin to, to get to as many um, workshops and um, the breakout events as possible. So I think uh, you know it would be interesting to see the evaluation that that you guys are, are getting, but. Um, it certainly appeared to be very successful. So, so you've spoken a little bit about kind of that growth from from the original Congress to, to this current one. Mm. But as an organising committee, what were the highlights and successes from your guys' point of view about how the Congress was um, was was uh, happened out there in, in the community? Yeah, certainly achieving our goals and going beyond our goals in terms of the number of the delegates. Mm-hmm. So we, 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 we far exceeded the number of delegates we hoped we would, we would have. That's a real highlight for us as the organisers. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also one thing to organise a conference where you technically have the, the venue sorted, the speakers turn up, the delegates turn up, and it all runs smoothly. It's a whole other thing to have all of that, plus have this mood of... Um, united purpose, there's a vibe that mm. pervaded the whole event and if you were there you would have really felt that um, mm. and, it, and it was quite an inspiring and empowering event just to be at because of that mood. Yeah, I think and I, that's yeah, really a, a really important point because, you know, like you say, the mechanics of organising a conference is organising a conference, but to create that, that feeling, and obviously that's, you know, a mix of how the event's brought together and the participants, but, you know, there, were, there was so much energy. And the, and the thing that I thought was, was really interesting and, and a real strength to the sector is there were so many different ways people were doing it. Everyone, you know... The objective of, of uh, community energy and, and renewable energy, but there wasn't just one way to go about that, and I think that certainly came out. And um, you know, and it seemed like the events were were pretty well attended across the board. It didn't seem like that was out of a really good balance of um, of the events. And because with community energy, there's no one way to do it. You know, there were some people who were really interested in an investment model. There were some that were interested in a donations model. And we're going to actually delve into those in future uh, radio episodes about the kind of different ways that community energy can be created. Uh, and those breakout sessions seem to be quite well attended. There wasn't, it didn't seem like, you know, some were hugely attended and some weren't attended at all in, in my kind of getting around the event. So that seemed to be a really positive out of the event that, you know, there's lots of different ways to achieve yeah. the same outcome. That's right. And, like, we, we firmly believe that community energy is defined by its diversity and that actually happens in a number of dimensions. The most obvious one would be um, the renewable energy technology that a community chooses to install. Um, mm. And if you live somewhere close to where there's hillsides that have lots of rain on them, you might put hydro in. If you're somewhere where it's windy, then you might decide that wind turbines are for you. Um, if you're somewhere where the sun shines a lot, and actually that pretty much describes most Australian communities, mm. um, then probably solar is something you're going to be interested in. But it goes beyond that simple dimension of diversity also to the motivations of the groups. So some groups just to be really motivated by taking advantage of the investment opportunity that this renewables revolution presents, Mm. whereas many groups are motivated by responding to the growing climate 
change emergency. Other groups are not so concerned about that and they just want to make sure that they can create local economic development for their towns. Of course, many groups have multiple facets that are motivating them, but that all combines to this diversity. And I, I think that's why I really focus on what, what are some of the outcomes going to be from this Congress is, 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 the, is the broad stuff. And, and I think, you know, so many people coming that are, that are back in their suburbs and towns struggling to do these what are, tend to be quite complex projects, um, coming to this event and, and getting that inspiration, hearing from other people who are doing the same thing as them, realizing that they're not doing, they're not the only ones doing it. Actually, they're part of a movement. I think that's probably the, the, the one of the most powerful yet somehow intangible outcomes. Yeah. that we're going to see from this Congress. Yeah. It was a really energised crowd and a really action-oriented. You know, that's what people were there for. They, it wasn't an academic exercise. You know, yeah. they were going back and, and reporting back to their, their community group or whatever it was or kind of trying to pull together a, a um, you know, a nucleus of people to get something off the ground, but it was about action, which yeah. is really exciting. I, I, and I think that I had a real sense there was a lot of deal-making going on. There was a lot of conversations happening in corridors between mm. groups, between groups and supporting organisations and industry. There was, you know, a number of industry players there, like new new and innovative retailers and, mm. you know, solar companies and so forth. And, yeah, I, I just got a sense that there's going to be a lot more partnerships. And partnerships between groups, I think, is really exciting because, you know, more and more we've got the groups that are the proven models. And there's sort of more and more opportunity to adopt, adapt, and pay, maybe even just use the other groups, you know, plat- like a platform to make it much easier to do community in, in your in your town or your neighbourhood. Yeah, exactly. There's no reason to yeah. reinvent the wheel. And I think that's something that going forward with the radio show, we're actually going to, you know, take time over, over the coming months to really delve into some of those examples and models so that, you know, people out there listening can kind of think, well, this one sounds like it's a, it's a fit for our, for us and our community. Mm. So yeah. looking forward to, um, you know, making those going a bit deeper into the detail going forward. So, yeah, look, there's one last thing I really wanted to get across, which I think is far and away the most obvious and, and sort of really um, powerful impact out of the Congress, and that is the fact that we organised for there to be Aboriginal delegates from right across Australia to be in attendance. That was not an easy decision to make because we knew that it was something that had to be dealt with in a culturally appropriate way and not to be seen as tokenistic, but to genuinely involve them in the Congress. Um, and, and um, you know, we had a, re- a really good turnout with, with the delegates. And, and um, what, what, we, what, what we did at their request was there was a particular room, as, as like a side room, where um, those delegates were, were, were having a, a circular conversation. And anybody from the Congress was welcome to come in and join that conversation. But the outcome of all of that was there's now going to be this new First Nations Renewable Energy Alliance formed for all of these First Nations from across Australia. And that's something that they're doing themselves. It's not something that someone from outside of those communities has come and told them would be a good idea or is sort of telling them that they need to do. And they're being supported by Canadian delegates that were there, so Canadian First Nations, um, and I just think that's a really exciting outcome. Um, and, and, and really the, the mood was that 
we're all doing the same thing. Whether you're doing a project in you know the inner suburbs of Melbourne, or you're you know over in southwest Western Australia, or you're an Aboriginal community from up in Cairns, we're all kind of doing the same thing. And that was really uniting and bringing together of these culturally diverse worlds that, 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 that really exist out there. And I think that's really powerful. Yeah, and, and that came across at the Congress, so, so that was great. So yeah. we'll just, just wrap up by talking about, um, you know, what are, what are the plans going forward and for, for future action? Yeah, the, the Coalition for Community Energy is, um, uh, is, is needing to go through some administrative changes at, at the moment. So we, um, we have to go through electing a new uh, steering group. The uh, secretariat role needs to be reappointed. But much shorter term than that, we are actually going out there and seeking some funding to put into, put into action some of the plans that were developed at the Congress. The whole way the Coalition for Community Energy is, is intended to work is through the delivery of these what are known as strategic initiatives. These are, these are collective um, initiatives that further progress community energy. We've got an overarching document called the, the um, National Community Energy Strategy, and strategic initiatives are really um, pieces of work that are collaborative to work towards achieving the vision in the National Community Energy Strategy. So short term, out of the plans developed at the Congress, we're going to be seeking funds moving forward on delivering those. Great. Well, we, um, I think it was a great event. Congratulations to yourself and all the other um, people that made it happen. Um, and certainly I think the participants really got a lot out of it and there's going to be a lot of action flow on. It's going to be really interesting to see what, what projects were uh, conceived in those few days. Thanks, Aaron, and a real pleasure to be on the show. Thanks for the opportunity. Great. Thanks, Tom. Bye-bye. That was a Beyond Zero Emissions Community Radio Summer Special where we take some of our favourite programs from 2017. We'll leave you now with the sound of the lyrebird made famous by imitating other bird calls and sounds that it hears in nature. See if you can pick up on any of the other bird calls that it's imitating and have a happy and safe holiday. Communities of Sound is a 3CR curated lineup of summer afternoon performances showcasing treaty, creative women and diverse cultures. Join us at the Fairfield Amphitheatre on Sunday, February 18th between 5 and 7.30 p.m. to enjoy live performances from Kucha Edwards, Tando, the West Papuan Band, Sweet Dreams, Manisha Njali, June Jones and Danny Sib. Pack a picnic to share with friends and family or grab a tasty bite and bevy from the 3CR food store. That's Sunday, 18th of February, 5 till 7.30pm at the Fairfield Amphitheatre. For further details, call 94198377 or check out our website at 3cr.org.au. Presented as part of the City of Yarra's Fairfield and Feb series alongside Play On and Melbourne Ukulele Collective. The City of Yarra is a proud sponsor of 3CR. This is the story of Inglepear, the crocodile, as perceived by the Aboriginal tribes of Arnhem Land, northern